If God is in control, why do things happen when they happen? Does God have a timeline for his dealings with earth? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prant, and welcome to Bible 805, where you can learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Today we're going to answer those questions when we discuss... Our topic today is six ways Christmas shows us how God works in historical events. This is going to be a really exciting thing, and I'm recording it on Christmas Day 2020. So let's get started. There are two important foundational truths that I want to share with you as we begin. Number one, the Christian faith is rooted in real events that happen in verifiable history. And number two, that God works in and through history. Now these are also core beliefs and an underlying theme of Bible 805, the entire ministry, and it's important to read your Bible with real history in mind. A great illustration of this is in God's extraordinary actions through history in preparation for Christmas. A key verse on this is Galatians 4 in 4 and 5 where it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now the key part here that I want to emphasize is that little phrase, when the fullness of time had come. Now in other translations it puts it like this. The Living Translation says, but when the right time came, Philip says, but when the proper time came, God sent his son, and the message puts it this way, but when the time arrived that was set by God the Father. Obviously, timing was important. So what does that mean in real history? What made the time right for God to send his son? It's a fascinating story told over the centuries. And now let's look at six historical events that prepared the world for the birth of Jesus. In addition to this podcast, I'm going to be continuing with another video version that will, after this particular whole thing is over where I show you the six things, then I'm going to have another video where I actually show you maps where all this happened. Obviously, I can't do it in the podcast, but please just go to the website, www.bible. 805.com and I will either have the video on that or a link to it but uh, don't miss out on it it's it's really neat when you see that but uh, one more preliminary fact just to emphasize and I can't emphasize this enough all these preparations are verifiable historical events that took place in real places involving real people. These are not made up fantasies, myths, or legends. They're all extensively verified in secular history. The location where all of this happened was the Mediterranean Basin. The primary people are the children of Israel, God's chosen to be his light to the world and from whom he would send the Messiah. Now let's start out with how this story began with the children of Israel. From their origins in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became a nation while they were in Egypt. Under Moses and the Exodus, they leave Egypt and under Joshua they conquer the promised land. 
Israel grows into an independent kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then it splits into both the northern and southern kingdom. This is really important to keep in mind. They did what they did because they had a covenant with God. They promised that they would agree to it at Sinai after they left Egypt, and their covenant stated that if they obeyed and worshipped God, they would be kept safe in their land, and if not, they would be punished by captivity outside the land. They disobeyed. God sent prophets for literally hundreds of years again, warning them again and again and again. They did not listen, and finally judgment happened. But even in that, God was at work. What happened is there were a series of deportations out of the land. The first major one took place in 722 when Assyria conquered, 722 BC, before Christ, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and scattered the exiles throughout the entire Middle East. This group of people did not return. They were not allowed to. They stayed in the areas that they'd been taken. The second major deportation, and actually there was a series of them, took place starting in seven uh, in 576 BC under Nebuchadnezzar. This is during the uh, series of years and campaigns. Jerusalem was finally destroyed and most of the people during this deportation went to Babylon and the surrounding areas. Now this was kind of interesting because after 70 years they did have the opportunity to return to the land, but many of them didn't. Many of them stayed in that area of the Middle East, and we see that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and we'll be going over all those things in much more detail in the coming year when we go through the Bible. There were many other migrations, minor ones that took place during Old Testament times for various reasons, for trade, for political reasons, various reasons uh, the, uh, numbers of the Jewish race left and went to Egypt, to Rome, and really were throughout the Mediterranean basin. Now, why this number one preparation was so important? Groups of Jewish people who worshipped the one true God were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, and they were a witness to their belief in the one true God. Next major development was the development of the synagogue system. Now, though this was actually, there were seeds of it earlier, it was formalized during the Babylonian captivity and following it, where the priestly leadership realized that they needed to develop an organized system to worship God that was not dependent upon the temple. The temple had been destroyed. Now, it was going to be rebuilt, but there were there were Jewish groups scattered all over the known world and many of them were not going to come back so they needed a new way to worship God. That's when they developed the synagogue system. They realized that they needed to do this and so they um, developed a system wherein if there were 10 Jewish men they could form what is called a minyan and from that they could develop a synagogue why this was important. In addition to just the scattered settlements of the Jewish people, now there were houses of worship established all over the Mediterranean basin. It was now a formal entity where people knew the one true God 
and they study the scriptures that pointed to the Messiah. And again, they were spread throughout this, the entire known world. The next thing that was very important was they formalized the Hebrew canon of scripture, what we know is our Old Testament. Now, this took place at approximately the same time as the synagogue system was formalized. There were members of what were called the Great Assembly or the Great Synagogue that decided these are the books, although they had been informally, it was all the same ones, but these are the ones that they were going to recognize as their canon. That's what we know of as our Old Testament today. And I'm going to be talking about that more when I go into how we got our Bible. Ezra was one of the leaders of the group and he helped lead a group of exiles back to Jerusalem in 459 BC. Nehemiah arrived about 14 years later and they worked together for a number of years. We don't know the exact process or how many years it took to totally uh, formalize this putting together of the scriptures, but we know that they had the same ones that we have. And again, as I said, more on this in our upcoming series of lessons on how we got our Bible. Now, why this preparation was so important. Jews now all over the known world studied the same scriptures, including many of the passages that predicted the coming of the Messiah. Remember, too, the Jews were extremely careful in what they determined was sacred scripture. They were also extremely careful in how they copied the scriptures. Very, very few textual variations over the centuries. And again, I, in other lessons, I will go through all that, but that's not the main point of this one. The point here is their scriptures told one consistent story, one set of prophecies that all of them and all of the synagogues read and were in agreement on. However, there was a problem that was developing in that their scriptures were primarily in Hebrew. There was a few passages in Aramaic, but not enough to really matter. But they were primarily in Hebrew. The problem is fewer and fewer people spoke Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the known world at that time and had been ever since the Assyrians had come through and, and conquered everybody. The next development was very important, and that was the development of the Koine Greek language. Now, after uh, Assyria had been a major power, and then Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then the, but they were, in the great scheme of things, fairly minor. They didn't last all that long. Uh, then Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the entire known world. He also was the one who developed the Koine Greek language. He was Greek, and he was actually, in many ways, a very benevolent ruler. He absorbed into his army, well, as far as marauding and killing and conquering rulers were at the time, but he absorbed into his army soldiers from many lands, and he would, uh, he would conquer a place, and then he would give them back rulership if they would serve him. But the one thing that he required is that they all speak the same language. And the language that he wanted them to speak was the Koine Greek. It was not some hidden scholarly language. It was a dialect of the Greek language that he developed specifically for his armies. It was incredibly precise, um, clear language, clear dialect. Why this preparation was important, everybody now 
in the entire known world spoke the same language, the Koine Greek. It remained the universal language until between 5 to 600 AD. It is also the language that the New Testament was written in. And remember I said it was a very precise, exact language. That is um, really a positive thing when we get to the writing of the New Testament. But that's a whole other story. I again will cover that when I talk about how we got our Bible. But before that, the next major development was the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Alexander was very favorable to the Jews, and his positive attitudes towards them seem to have been continued by one of the generals who followed him, not by all of them. That's a whole, again, other story. But Ptolemy, who got all of Egypt and initially Palestine after Alexander's death. Now, he had a son. He was Ptolemy II, also known as Ptolemy Philadelphus, and he lived from 281 to 246 B.C., in Alexandria, Egypt, which was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. Now, traditionally, he is the one who began the work on translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and this translation became known as the Septuagint. Again, there's so much more to that story, which I will talk about in another lesson, but the key thing that is not disputed is that the content of the Hebrew Bible was now widely available to the Greek-speaking world. Why this preparation was important. Now, everybody in the entire known world could read the Hebrew Bible in the same language. It was in the language they spoke, the language of culture, the language of commerce. Um, it was no longer just in the language of the priests, but the secular people had access to it as well. The next development, development number six, is the development of the Roman roads. This was the most incredible system for transportation in the ancient world. It linked all parts of the Roman and formerly all of Alexander's empire. It was so, they were so well built that many of them still survive today. I doubt if many of our roads will be standing 2,000 years from now, but the Roman roads were incredible. Uh, here's a quote out of the Christian History Institute magazine. It's, it's quite good. It says, quote, The first two centuries of the Christian era were great days for the traveler, uh, writes historian Lionel Cassan. A planned network of good roads gave him access to all major centers, and the routes were well policed, enough for him to ride them with relatively little fear of bandits. Because of the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, of Emperor Augustus, who lived from 27 BC to 14 AD, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus declared, There are neither wars nor battles, nor great robberies nor piracies, but we may travel at all hours and sail from east to west. Why this preparation was important. Common people could use the roads and travel in relative safety. You see, God uses much more than intellectual developments or scholarly things or manuscripts or whatever to work out his plans and his will. Now let's review these and then we'll summarize it. In review, the preparations. You have God's chosen people scattered everywhere throughout the Mediterranean world. 
Groups met each week to study the scriptures where they learn about God's coming Messiah. Everyone speaks the same language. They now have the scriptures in the language they speak. They have the Roman roads and the Pax Romana, a time of peace, safety, and travel that had never been possible in the world prior to this time and in a few hundred years would soon become very difficult once again. The time was not only right for the Messiah to be born, but the time was right to share the message of salvation. Now think about this. This is really exciting. Jews from all over the world were able to travel to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And in Acts 2, 1, um, and then 5 through 11, it says, Now when the day of Pentecost came, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, and this was the sound of the tongues of the uh, flames of fire descending and the disciples and all of the people in the upper room speaking in, in tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Now we usually just read this really quickly and don't even think anything about it, but this was absolutely, utterly extraordinary. And when you look at the maps, you see how incredible it was that all of these people were able to travel safely to Jerusalem to be there at this time to hear the message. Not only were they able to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, but the disciples and Paul were then able to travel in safety from Jerusalem to share the message of salvation to all the other parts of the world. And then it gets even better. What did Paul do when he arrived at any of the cities? He goes into the Jewish synagogue in that area and shows them from their scriptures and speaks to them in a language they all understood that Jesus was the long-awaited and prepared for Messiah and Savior. I wonder if Paul thought about all that had to come together for this to be possible. Probably not. Not any more than we really realize all of the things that God brings together and does for us in our lives to protect us and to accomplish His will. Now just to review the history of God's preparation for Christmas. The Jewish diaspora, the development of the synagogue, the formalization of the Hebrew scriptures, Alexander conquering the world and commanding everyone to speak Greek, the scriptures translated into Greek, the building of the Roman roads and the Pax Romana. All these things enabled Jews from all over the known world to travel to Jerusalem to hear the initial story of salvation from Peter at Pentecost and then 
to go home and tell their congregations that the scriptures were fulfilled. And all these things enabled Paul to travel safely all over the known world, to go to a central meeting place, the local synagogue, when he arrived with a people prepared to hear his message and was able to preach to them in a universal language that they could all understand. Remember again, all these events happened in real places with real people in historically and archaeologically verified time. In a few minutes, I will also record a video that will show you the things through the maps. And if you would like to see a tour, a map tour of all this, do go to www.bible805. Now, just a few ideas for application. This lesson is a great reminder that nothing happens by accident. Nothing is left to chance in the sovereign plan of God. It'll probably take time, more time than we'd like, for God's plans to work out in our lives and in our world, but they will. In closing, I reminded of the words of a woman named Julian of Norwich. She lived through a plague in her day, and in looking at it, and looking at how she could trust God, she said this, these great words that have comforted many and still comfort us today, where she said, All will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. The same God who prepared for thousands of years for the birth of his son, who got the people in Julian's day through their pandemic and many more of his people through many trials in past times, is with you now and will safely see you home. That's all for now. Check out the notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links at www.bible805.com. If the podcast has been helpful and useful to you, please consider supporting it through your donations and prayers. For links on how to do that, again, check out the Bible 805 website. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.